Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Yeah, this is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. Everyone calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. For the purposes of this particular podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. You don't uh, have to. If you call me Whitney. If you've been paying attention this week, you'll notice this has been a pretty light week over at Critically Acclaimed. Lots going on behind the scenes, uh, which will actually make everyone's lives a lot better in the long run. But in the meantime, uh, one of us is egregiously overworked, just in uh, general. And his you, name rhymes with Whitney. <laughs> rhymes with Herkimer Battle Jitney. Um, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I am in, in on the cusp of changing jobs, which means I'm kind of working both at once at right now, and yeah. things are really ramping up at my old one. It's just killing just your to schedule. sort of yeah, kind of yeah. train my replacement, as it were. Yeah. So uh, yeah, everything's done, really really busy. But once I switch over to the yeah. other job, I'll have like steadier hours, and we'll yeah. be able to sort of find a new recording schedule in there, rather than just sort of catch as catch can, which we have not been able to catch over the last week. Like, well, and honestly, just the last two years, Whitney and I have been recording almost all of our podcasts like after midnight multiple nights a week mm. and as a result we're really really tired yeah, because, all the uh, time i've been working a night job and yeah. i will no longer be working a night job um yeah I, i'm in my 40s and i feel like i'm in my 60s so uh yeah i just because of all of the late nights um so i'm happy I was, for you i was working a lot of midnight shows and that was you know when you're in your 20s that's fun you're up late up for the late night party, but you know, there are only so many late night parties you can attend before you are underslept and just feel, feel just like you're go gonna die. Um so yeah. yeah. That so, will that will end for me. I'll be working working daytime hours like an ordinary human being for for the first time in my life, really. So with a little luck after like after Whitney gets settled in mm-hmm. after a couple of weeks, we can actually like have a schedule that will be a little bit more consistent with our podcasts, but also be able to record podcasts and not like fall asleep at like in the middle of them, mm. which has happened once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll have you know, I've never fallen asleep on the mic. Uh-huh. I've come close a couple times. I have, it, but I have oh, at yeah. least once, <laughs> at least once. So if you we ever, if you're hear, hear me saying things like, Hey William, <laughs> what do you <laughs> think? <Usually why. laughs> anyway, that's just a quick update on what's going on behind the scenes. It's all good stuff, but this week, Sorry, it's really light. Hmm. Uh, but let's—we did want to make some time for our, a letters episode because you're our favorite people, and yeah. we we want to make sure you have your time. So, uh, once again, here's how the podcast works: you email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can ask us questions about things you want to know more about, or uh, our takes on things, mm. or you can take us to task for stuff if you disagree yeah, we, with our reviews or whatever. I'm going to read us a couple corrections this week. Oh snap! Yeah. We make mistakes. We're I human. know. It's a little embarrassing. Yeah. What are you going to do? I, I, I can go, oh, snap, but I'll take it. All right. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we improve. Exactly. Um, but uh, also, we have a P.O. box for people who prefer to send us physical letters. Mm-hmm. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, send us a, a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And we like to, whenever we have the opportunity, begin the letters episode with... An actual mailed letter, yes. and that is something we have to do this week. Uh, I'll say this: um, I, I know if I if I start making guarantees, we'll start failing. But mm-hmm. uh, if you want your letter read on the air, better chance if you send us a physical letter. Yeah, Just we're, saying. we're 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 we uh, yeah, so we definitely uh, if you go to all the trouble of sending us a physical letter, we do yeah, want to make uh, sure uh, that that yeah, and you, this, get little, you get some credit for it. And yeah. this one comes from Canada, so Ooh, uh, across the border to get here, and it's it's a nice long. Uh, Handwritten letter. Wow. 
uh, from Jeremy. So thank you for writing in, Jeremy. This, thank you, Jeremy. This whole papers I've been crinkling this whole time. It says, uh, greetings, William and Whitney. I figured that if I'm going to mail a letter, I may as well actually use a pen and paper and go old school with this. So I suppose up, I suppose up front I should apologize for my poor penmanship. Bad spelling. Spelling is spelled S-P-E-A-L-I-N-G. Spelling. Ah. And the grammar I don't use goodly. I'm uh, barely four lines in. I'm already missing the little red and blue squiggles telling me that I've messed up. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of weird how paper doesn't do that for you. Yeah. You just have to charge ahead. Um, My uh, my son, who's in the first grade, uh, is learning about what they call brave writing. Mm. If you don't know how to spell, try anyway. Okay, that's yeah, nice. Write, write bravely and yeah. you know, misspell. It doesn't matter. It will correct yeah. you if it's wrong and you'll learn. Yeah, because exactly. You, don't, don't go to be- better, better to better. You don't want to be afraid of words. Hmm. You know? You yeah, like, try to communicate as best you the, can uh, and we'll fix it if it as needs fa- to. As Father May I once said, if you fall on your face, you're still moving forward. Um, <laughs> Father, may I? <laughs> yes, you may. Okay. It's a reference to the movie Repossessed. Um, <laughs> I joined your Patreon when you dropped Encounter at Farpoint for free on all on all your listeners, and damn it, you had me. Yay. My Star Trek fandom rests somewhere between uh, between you two. Only the only way I may surpass Whitney's fandom is in music, because for uh, for my piano grade five and six recitals, I played a piano arrangement of the DS9 and Voyager theme songs. Nice. So unless Whitney has yet to be a, a revealed musical talent, I may have that on him, but not a constant because he'd destroy me and all the other on facts and fandom. Uh, I played flute as a child. Ooh. Can you play the Voyager theme? No, but I can play the Tiny Toon Adventures theme. Ooh. I did that for a recital. That's, that's adorable. Yeah, like I actually transcribed it myself. Um, I promised myself that I would write an actual letter after completing the original series watch, uh, watch along. I was rather disappointed that neither of you, uh, mentioned that in a uh, piece of the action right before Spock starts going along with Kirk's ruse, Kirk calls Spock Spocko. <laughs> <laughs> For me, this is why it's the best dumb episode, only second to the Gamesters of Triskelion. I love the Gamesters uh, of Triskelion. A piece of the action, for those who don't remember, is the episode in which uh, the crew of the Enterprise goes to a gangster planet. A planet yep. where everyone's a gangster, like in the 1930s, out of guys and dolls. Oh my God. It's great. It, it's... Maybe maybe one of the more ridiculous episodes. But it's a deeply uh, entertaining episode. But the main thing I wanted to bring up was another headcanon thing. I had emailed you hypothesizing that the holodecks could power a starship. I'm a little surprised that William didn't ask me to stop writing in. But here I go with another one. And don't worry, it won't be as vulgar as the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sarek figured out a way to break the cycle of Ponfar. <laughs> Sarek is Spock's dad. Ponfar is the Vulcan ritual that allows them to mate once every seven years. But it also uh, kind of kills their libido between them so they can focus yeah. on pure logic. That's right. They, they yeah. save up all their libido, and it, but it has to bust out every seven years. Yeah. Uh, I, like most Trekkies, a title uh, I wear with pride, by the way, was a little taken aback by the existence of Cybok, Spock's fully Vulcan half-brother. It was a hearty, what, WTF trek. Where did that come from? But we will learn about the Vulcan mating ritual of Ponfar. Every seven years, the animalistic side of Vulcans come out, and they either need to copulate or kill. If Ponfar is as animalistic and primal as they say, and they note that it is a physiological change, it would be reasonable to compare it to when animals go into, quote, heat. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their bodies are preparing for genetic material to continue the species. We know uh, women do experience Ponfar, too, because uh, T'Pol experiences it on an episode of Enterprise. True. Sorry, maybe a spoiler for Bibbs. No, I, yeah. I know about it. I yeah. know about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I haven't watched all of Enterprise mm. or all of Voyager. 
Uh, but I'm familiar with yeah. it. Like, I know about that. Spock consi- has a Ponfar episode. I don't uh, consider that spoilers. Yeah, uh, I don't consider that spoilers. Stranded in the Delta Quadrant, uh, mm-hmm. Tim Russ, who, uh, Tuvok, yeah. also has to go through Ponfar. actually, yeah, right. And uh, he goes to the, the holographic doctor. He's like, well, I'm a hologram. We can just make a holographic version of your wife. Yeah. And and he's like, that's sick, dude. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> we'll not do it with a hologram. It's oh. like, look, Doctor patient confidentiality. No one would know. Yeah, it's like a, it's, it's the easiest solution it's, it's to actually, that issue. It's actually logical, right? because yeah. <laughs> he says uh, he suggests like Tuvok. You know, maybe you could just get with one of the women on the ship. And Tuvok's like, no, I'm married. So yeah, but your wife's back in the Alpha, dude. I'm married. Yeah, we live hundreds of years. I'm gonna see her again. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a business trip for me. <laughs> anyway. uh... Uh, so I ask, why doesn't Spock have more siblings? Is Sarek simply the Ponfar killer, electing combat <laughs> cue music over his banging? <laughs> I think Sarek found a loophole by marrying a human. Ah. In Journey to Babel, we always see Sarek and Amanda Grayson holding their fingers together in the vocal mental marital hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's two fingers. Like the yeah. two things. Uh, I suspect that that constantly being linked to the emotional human mind via a Vulcan physical telepathy allows Sarek to at least siphon off the repressed primal nature of Sarek. So his pawn far is at least less intense. If not by, if not bypassed mm. plus, uh, taking a human life means her anatomy didn't line up with the moons of Vulcan, like, uh, Vulcan women. Okay. All right. Uh, so there you go. That's my fan theory. On a more personal note, I want to thank you for the hard work you both do. I always appreciate when you talk about your personal struggles because I got my struggles with depression and my body image issues. I also used to be a man of 337 pounds, but I've been using your podcasts uh, at times for walking and I changed my, I changed my, uh, I can't read this word. Diet? I changed my diet, okay. and uh, now I'm down to 280 pounds, and still dropping. Yeah. So maybe something you didn't expect to help a listener with, but my knees, heart, and health, thank you. Still depressed AF, but that's another struggle. Mm. So I sign off and wish you both the best. Uh, sincerely, Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you for writing mm. in. And, and um, there's a P.S. Oh, P.S. Um, PS uh, how do you suggest I start a write-in campaign to have top 10 Looney Tunes shorts for an Iron List option? Ooh, that's Fun. Well, we can just try to remember that now. Uh, remind me about that, and then we put the other next poll. No. Um, so, uh, first off, thank you for writing in, and thank you for yeah, taking the time you. to do so. I assume you did it via candlelight, uh, which no, is it, always no, fun imagining. And, and it has to be like an old-fashioned tallow candle, yeah. like back before they started using beeswax candles. Yeah. You know, back back before the age of the novel, when you can only write like very small epistles. Wonderful. Um, but uh, firstly, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, you know, we do try to talk, and I in particular try to talk about my mental health struggles. It's been a lot of where I've been going. Oh, hi, Luca. Oh, thank you. And Lu- Luca tapped you on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, when you said that. Luca gave me some 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 gentle care. Thank you, buddy. Luca's our cat. Um, so thank you for that. And um, I also am trying to be more uh, focused on body positivity. I myself am a large gentleman. Uh, and uh, so I'm if losing weight is something you want to do for your own uh, uh, happiness and health, I'm happy that you're doing it. And I'm happy that we can help. So congratulations. I know it's not easy. Uh, and uh, that's great. And to mm-hmm. everyone else at home who uh, is like me, struggles with your weight. Uh, remember, it's okay. Hmm. Be who you are. But if you want to, if you want to change yourself, if that will make you happier, go for it. Congratulations, 
And I'm really, really glad we can help if that's mm-hmm. what's part of your journey. So congratulations. I'm glad you're feeling happier. And um, regarding the Pond Far theory, um, I feel as though they just didn't think that shit out. Because that never <laughs> even occurred to me. Like, if every seven years you're supposed to mate, you would have more children, wouldn't you? Well, it doesn't say you have to uh, procreate. You no, but sex. but if if both but if both men well if that's when they have sex, mm-hmm. which I imagine would be you know more voraciously, you would think that there would be a lot more people spaced, but be a lot more like people on Vulcan spaced out seven years in terms of brother in terms of siblings. You know, yeah, you think well, there would be, that would be more. We, common. we don't learn Cybok's age in Star Trek Five. That's true. They live for hundreds of years. Who knows no. how old he is? So, he could have been from Sarek's first wife, who died. All, all, all we know is that uh, he is in distance from Spock, uh, an age of a factor of seven. Yeah. Like he's 7, 14, 28 years older or younger than Spock. Probably. Mm. Yeah. Um, in any case, it, oftentimes this stuff boils down to they weren't thinking it out and logic comes to us, the people who care at home. <laughs> and uh, sometimes mm. logic works out fine. Mm. Um, it is possible that his close proximity to an affection for a human has affected how Ponfar affects him. Uh-huh. I buy that. It's... it's um, Probably more of a placebo effect, I imagine, than anything else. Yeah. It's not really physiologically changing them, but since they are kind of psychic, maybe that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, or they just didn't think it through. <laughs> Both are very, very possible. Uh, there has never been anything to address the notion of a queer Vulcan. Not do, that I'm aware of, have, yeah. do, Does it have to be a, a, a cisgendered Vulcan male having sex with a cisgendered Vulcan female? That's or, a good question. Uh, you know, is, is it... Uh, is it just to have some kind of sexual activity? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly it has to be with another person. That's what they've said. Like, it does they, can't, like they can't do it can't, by themselves. That, apparently not. Mm. Um, it's also something that they've never wanted to go into great detail about no. because it's a little, um, it's a little, uh, it's a little prurient. It, yeah. It's, so, it, it's especially for the 1960s when they introduced it, they were never going to go into detail about that. Well, shit. the the language they used in the original episode, uh, Amok Time was, uh, they they kept saying the word biology. It's like I have a problem. What is it, Spock? It's biological. It's, like, <laughs> it's not a disgusting body doing disgusting like, body you, things. You, you guys are like, like sailors on a starship. You can just say I, I need to fuck. You know, like you, you know, just, well again, be it's frank it's, about it. He's he's a logical being, and I think sometimes in the original series they thought that meant that all he cared about were pursuits of the mind, and the pursuits of the body were irrelevant. Mm. However, um. Your physical health affects your mental health and acuity, and vice versa. Mm. So it would make sense for Spock or any other Vulcan to understand that the human body has needs. Not everyone has the same needs. Mm. Not everyone has the same desires. Some people don't have as much or any sex drive. Um, And I'm sure there are probably some Vulcans out there who experience that. But generally speaking, Mm. I guess this is the average... Vulcan way of it. Yeah, they they finally explain in uh, Enterprise that some Vulcans, like for instance, have uh, not a, not all of them can do mind melds. Like only yeah. some of them have that ability, which makes sense. So some there, there's like a little bit more others. variety and sort of. I'm what we bad know about. at math. You're bad at mind yeah, melds. You know that happens. sort of thing. And, yeah, 
And and uh, it, in the world of Enterprise, uh, it was actually like really verboten. You're not weren't supposed to do it. Yeah. Uh, and well, like, initially in the series, it was it, considered yeah. like sort of like this private Vulcan thing. Yeah. That you weren't supposed to do very often, but they kept writing themselves into corners and having to have Spock do yeah, it more in, and more and became more commonplace. Yeah. In the in uh, Enterprise, which takes place like yeah. century before Star Trek. Uh, yeah, it was like this really taboo thing that nobody yeah. did. It was far too intimate, and they, they yeah. like tried to do this like STD metaphor with it, like an oh, sexually yeah, transmitted infection that, yeah. kind of thing, where it's like if you do a mind meld, you pass something to the person you do a mind meld with. Uh, that sounds like an awkward metaphor. It's it's really awkward. It's really <laughs> badly handled. Right, we, sh- we should move on. To but All thank right. you so much for writing in. That was a great letter. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, anyway, uh, I talked about doing some corrections. So here is a correction that was correcting me. Something I said. Um, this is from CWB. Thank you for writing in. Uh, hey, Bibs and Rockmeister. Warm regards from Oklahoma. I hope this email finds yours, you and yours well. I love listening to just you gentlemen talk musicals. As a Ooh. theater kid, it warms my heart and soul. Since you both expressed an admiration for live recordings of shows, I might suggest you seek out the great the PBS great performance of the 2006 Broadway revival of Company, starring ah. uh, Raul Esparza. Uh, the hook was that all the music was being performed by the cast as they performed the show. Hmm. This means that multiple performers had to play a variety of instruments in between and during the scenes. Lenya Rideout should be a household name for singing, acting, and doing light choreography while wheeling around and playing a freaking cello. Wow. That's <laughs> the entire tricky. cast is flawless and it is an exhilarating way to witness the theater. I saw the same director's Sweeney Todd with the same hook on Broadway. Ooh. And when I say Patti LuPone brought the house down playing a tuba during <laughs> Pirelli's Miracle Elixir, you should know it is a thing of an unmitigated glory. That's amazing. Uh, I had a slight correction I wanted to point out. And I choose this forum to exp- uh, as opposed to a tweet. So I sounded a little less, a little less like that well actually type of guy <laughs> you mentioned that Oklahoma was the first musical to incorporate its music into the storyline this I learned in college um, however Showboat has that honor from 1927 yep. it was a very successful show Showboat was like the very first like mm-hmm. giganto hit musical like there were yeah. hit musicals before that but nothing on the size of Showboat Showboat yeah. like kind of tore up all the records Yeah, uh, it was a very successful show and even had a couple of Broadway standards that remain today most notably Old Man River yep great song uh, um, in between Showboat and Oklahoma in 1944 many notable and revered shows like Anything Goes The Boys from Syracuse and Pal Joey were all released and remain seminal parts of the musical theater history I hope I'm not out of line in suggesting the trivia I believe you are referencing is that Oklahoma is considered the first musical to incorporate dance into the plot in the narrative mm. what with the dream ballet and all Oklahoma basically added the final piece in what became our modern expectation of a classic musical anyway I hope that didn't sound <laughs> I hope I don't sound like a jackass oh goodness no mm. uh I'm the jackass. I'm the one who screwed up. You're correcting me. How are you the jackass in this scenario? I'm the, I'm the one. Uh, and I truly appreciate all y'all do. Hope y'all have a great rest of the week, month, and life. Sincerely, CWB. CWB, thank you so much for writing in. That is a great point. And it's actually, uh, it's a bit of a trap. It's easy to fall into where you want to simplify history. Yeah. In order for the sake, usually for conversational expedience. Sometimes you just don't know any better. Um we were talking about, I forget the exact context, but we brought it up multiple times, so it could have been anything, um, that musicals didn't used to have an, a, a, a dramatic through line, and the songs didn't necessarily tell the story. Mm. Um, a lot of the more popular uh, stage musicals were little more than a selection of vignettes, a selection of different musical numbers and a bunch of different sketches. Um and the idea of a musical as a story that is told explicitly through original songs crafted to reveal character and to further the plot 
is a little more recent than people think. Obviously, mm. Opera was doing this, well, yeah. uh, but then we can go back to Gilbert and Sullivan if we really want to. But as we think about the modern stage musical, yeah, Oklahoma sometimes gets all the credit for being the thing that, if not invented it, perhaps popularized it to hmm. the point where everyone felt the need to copy. Yeah. But there were definitely antecedents. Uh, I was aware of Showboat. I was a little less aware of Pal Joey and the boy from Syracuse. So thank you for that. Mm. Um, but uh, yes, it is really useful to know that behind every, this was the first, there's a whole bunch of others. Yeah. I, um, I need to call up my college professor who had a musical history course. Oh, you were you taught that officially? I was taught that officially oh, in college. Well, oh, and that sucks. Maybe well, I went to college in the late 90s. So it's right. been a while. My right. brain is faulty. We were just talking uh, recently about how uh, we uh, record <laughs> late nights a yeah, lot. We are we uh, are un- we are literally there's there's like a um there's like a study that if you get like less than like six hours of sleep a night or five hours of sleep a night mm-hmm. for like four nights in a row, your cognitive capacity is legally drunk. Then I'm legally drunk, aren't yeah. I? Uh, that happens a lot. Um, yeah. This was a, a college course. I'm not sure if any uh, any college students are listening and you've had a professor that does this, but they make you read their textbook, the one Uh they wrote. Yeah. And the one we wrote hadn't been published yet. So we were given like the proofs like that were bound together with those little uh, uh, split brads. Uh, It's a great way for the college professor to get a little extra money from their royalties. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, but however, but it, it, uh, is, I was, it I was also t- can make a lot of we, sense we t- if you're learning the text. And yeah, so so it, and, yeah. And, I, and I was it's also, not inherently. I was awful, also 18, little, so it's yeah. entirely. It, I'm putting this on myself. I'm not going to put it on my professor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the idea that Oklahoma was sort of the one that cracked things wide open was something yeah. that that he wanted to repeatedly uh, mm-hmm. teach us. Uh, one that uh, I heard constantly growing up, not just from the source, but also from a lot of different like film scholars was that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was the first feature-length animated movie. It's the first feature-length American animated movie. That may be true, but there are definitely feature-length animated films that precede it by over 10 years. Oh, yeah. There's actually a film... Snow White and Seven Dwarfs was 37. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 26, I believe, there was an animated film called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Mm. Uh, which was done more through like sort of a cut shadow, out, cut yeah, cutouts yeah. and shadow. Um, gorgeous, by the way, really neat. It's on the Criterion animation. channel. Yeah, it's the definitely worth checking out. It's please check it out. It's really really cool. And even that is not the original. Well, it's, it's the last surviving. That's uh, the trick. Animated feature film. That's the trick. A lot the of silent cinema. Yeah. A lot of silent cinema is missing. And so, although we know for a fact. Uh, that there were at least two other animated features that precede The Adventures of Prince Ahmed from an Arti- Argentinian director, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Quirino Cristiani. Mm. Uh, for all we know, those weren't the first either, and the first is lost again. Like, mm. lost, lost, and we don't even know it existed. Um, it's really yeah. shameful how much of cinema history is really nebulous because yeah. of bad archiving. Yeah. Ne- bad archiving and here in the United States, uh, just a, a, a bloody minded insistence on shutting ourselves off with the rest of the world. That's American yeah. in general, but because uh, adventures of Prince Ahmed is a German film yeah. uh, directed by Lottie Reininger, a, a, mm. a female director, pioneer female director in the world mm. of animation. Oldest surviving animated film was directed by a woman. Um, uh, 
you know, here in America, everything was really sexist. Mm. You know, the, in the early days, a lot more women were directing. And then at some point, it became a boys club. And mm-hmm. uh, after a while, like men became sort of the bulk of directors. Yeah. Um, I think it's great. Uh, Ventures of Prince Ahmed, gorgeous looking movie. Yeah. Especially on the Criterion Channel, where they kind of cleaned it up and they retinted mm-hmm. it like to the original uh, original specs. Yeah, a lot of silent cinema really was in color. Yeah. People don't actually realize that they had to do it by hand a lot of the time, or they tinted uh, the camera in a different mm-hmm. way. But like, yeah, it's they're really gorgeous. Um, so in any case, um, it's always useful to have those kinds of great man stories or great cinema stories like ah yes this film invented blank and to know that like nope <laughs> and it's true for musical theater it's true for mm. music and painting all kind of stuff um it's always good to have your horizons broadened because ultimately what we're usually talking about and this is relevant what we're usually talking about is the work or the artist who made something so popular mm. that it became common household influenced a lot of people around them because oftentimes the antecedents didn't reach that giant audience, which is why we don't know about them so well, Hmm. but sometimes it's just our ignorance. And, um, it's also, and regardless, you always want to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, it's not on Netflix anymore. Mm. I don't think, uh, but you can get it on Tubi and I think Mm. it's also on Amazon prime, but there was a really great, uh, film documentary series called simply the story of film and Odyssey. Mm. Uh, and uh, the earlier episodes are the most fascinating for me because it's all about sort of the origin of stuff. Okay. And they actually bothered to track down a lot of like the first use of certain kinds of camera techniques. Ooh. Uh, going back to like, here's an obscure French short about firefighters. And it was the first time where uh, there was an edit from looking like outside of an exterior, looking toward a building uh-huh. and an edit where the camera is now looking uh, 180 degrees in the opposite direction from the inside of the building. Oh. Like looking out that same window. That's really common in filmmaking now. Yeah, but you realize that someone had to invent so, that. Yes. That, Think about and, all the things So they that, actually like, yeah. went through like all of film history and found this like one obscure French short where yeah. they did that for the first time. Because when, when cinema started, it was just static shots. That's mm. all people had. And then when we started inventing the concept of editing, all of a sudden people started to get like, ooh, what if... Yeah. We took this wide shot of everyone walking around, and what if we just cut to some like someone's face, like closer up, so we can get their emotions? You have to realize: can you do that? That that, that, was be, a, that somebody had audi- to invent that. Would the yeah. audience <laughs> understand what we're doing because that no one's done that before? It's not part of the vernacular, and now it's common. Um, uh, that documentary just fucking eviscerates Birth of a Nation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Birth of Birth a Nation, Nation did had nothing. Yeah, Birth of a Nation had this reputation in film schools for many, many years about yeah. uh, it pioneered all these important film techniques. Uh, uh-huh. The one that we got taught over and over again was that it invented the the technique of cross cutting. Yeah, that is two, two action scenes. Two action yeah. scenes were uh, happening simultaneously, and they would cut back and forth between the two of them to have them match together. It does do that. Yeah. It was not the first to do that. No, it wasn't. No, there are many, many antecedents. No, to no, that. it's it's basically it's a it's a, it's a racist film. Yeah. that got promoted by people who like like that message enough, and we just sort of its significance got built up and up and up mm. over time to the point where for a long time when I was young. People were like, yeah, it's super racist, but it's so historically significant. We have to keep talking about it. Yeah, and they, now they we're teaching it in schools. And, and now people have actually done the proper research and they know that, nope, it mm. isn't doing anything new. It's not historically insignificant, but it's also not historically like influential. Uh-huh. It's not actually like super important. It's actually just 
this guy, this racist guy made a really long racist movie using all the techniques at the time. That's it. That's kind of it. We don't you, have to deal seen, with that. You've seen Brother Nation, right? Not the whole thing. I, I couldn't I, get through it. I, uh, I rented it from my local video store. Yeah. I kept it hearing about it in film school. So I did it. I, I yeah. watched it. It's a long film, too. It's like yeah. you know, three and a half hours long. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, they, they cleaned it up. It was considered historically significant. Yeah. I think Kino put out a, a really big box set of I remember the DVD, yeah, the DVD was available for a while, yeah. Uh, and they retented it. So, yeah, the, the film yeah. looks fine, but, uh, you know, and, and the cross-cutting is there. But sure. it, it's full of racist bullshit. Yeah, it's a uh, horrifying it's, thing. I, I couldn't get through it. Yeah. And, and, and I don't feel bad about the it. The curious thing is it didn't come with a musical score. Yeah. Like at all. Ver- Not at even all. offered. Yeah. Like, a, well, maybe it was, I just couldn't get it to operate on the okay. TV, but there was a trackless version. So I ended up putting on some jazz. Oh, weird. <laughs> that's kind <laughs> so, of perverse. Some, if you think some about like, it. Yeah. like some Coltrane to sort of like, that's back this we- up. Like, oh, and, that's weird. Yeah. Like I, I thought, well, what's like ambient music. And the only thing I had was like oh, my, my Ken Burns jazz box set. So I, I wanted to see like, what would that do? Would that affect yeah. the film? And I, I feel like Coltrane won. <laughs> well, I hope so. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Anyway, we should move on, but thank you so much for the correction. Yeah. Thank you. It's important to learn. We want to learn. And that's something that we kind of knew, but thank you so much for making sure that we stick to our guns and don't fall back on lazy shit that we heard and isn't entirely true. Mm -hmm. So we should do better and we should not resort back to Oklahoma is the big one. Not necessarily. Thank Um, you. uh, And here's another correction. Um, This comes from Moses. Hello, Moses. We've heard from Moses before. Hi. Um, Hi, Bibbs. And uh, it's it's, uh, my name in Hebrew. Oh, cool. (laughs) Which which I cannot read Hebrew. I apologize. Um, On a recent Critically Reclaimed, you mentioned that the actor Hank Azaria was Italian. I'm sorry. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Oh, no. His family are Sephardic Jews from Greece. Oh, no shit. Uh, I was wrong. And and he was born in New York. And he was born in New York. I think that's where I got it from. Like, I think Um, he's played Italians and things. So I think it's how I fucked that up. Well, I I assumed the name Azaria was was an Italian name. Mm. I apologize for that. Mistakes happen. Do soldier on and keep up the awesome work. Love you guys, Moses. So thank you for the correction. Hank Azaria, not Italian. Thank you Mm. so much. Mm. Whoops. We were wrong. That's on. That's on me. Yep. Was that you who said that? I, I said okay, that. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, played. I think we were talking. I didn't about, know enough to. I didn't know enough to disagree. I think we were talking about the birdcage. I think that's and, right. And yeah. uh, I said uh, that he, he plays a character from Guatemala, mm. uh, and I said, but he's an Italian American. He's not Italian American. Okay, so well, live and learn. Uh, we were wrong. We apologize he, if anyone was was yeah. upset. Um, uh, yeah. On to the next letter. Here's a letter from uh, John Keefe. Hello, John Keefe. Hi. Uh, hello, uh, dear Mr. Bibiani and Mr. McCool. I've been listening to your podcast since 2017 uh, when I needed something to listen to while I cleaned my yard. <laughs> yard work brought you to we, us. We, so we're, we're, I, I hope it's a nice looking yard. We're involved in many a chore. <laughs> many That's, a household chore. Yeah, what, what are you doing right now? I hope it's uh, no. uh, l- only lightly strenuous. Um, <laughs> lucky for me, I found your Air Bud podcast and Yay! have been hooked on ever since. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you that not only have you guys inspired me to start my own YouTube channel Ooh. with my cousin, but you've also given me the gift of many films I never would have found without your recommendations. With that said, your greatest gift to me was Psycho Gorman. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Which yes. now every chance I get, I will tell who will listen how good this film really is. So thank you guys so much for what you do. I will share the link of the video we made about Psycho Gorman, and I made sure to thank you guys for showing me the light on this wonderful film. You're a longtime fan and maybe one day patron, John Keefe. Uh, and yeah, and here's a. Li- I'm gonna we, we, na- tell you what the name of the video is, or at it's, least the name. Can you tell me the name of the YouTube channel? Maybe that um, would be. Let's see. Uh, useful. Yeah. yeah it, the title of the video is simply uh, "Psycho Gorman Review." Okay. Uh, it's from Let's Talk Entertainment and Media. 
Okay, so let's talk entertainment and media. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, 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 a, that's, and ampersand. Got it. Okay, and uh, so then that is a mm. review of Cycle Gorman. We will check that out. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to have time to do this second because we're trying to get through the podcast. But mm. I definitely want to check that out. And I'm very grateful mm. to you for taking a chance on a weird movie that not everybody yeah. saw. And I'm glad it paid off. Uh, the wonderful thing about some of these weird movies, I, I've heard people say this is an instant cult classic. Mm, no, that's not the way cults really work. They kind of have to grow. Give them yeah. at least like a year to see. Are people like, still talking about it? Are, well, are people still talking about it? Are you still thinking about it? Are, yeah. are you driven to return to it? Is it something you have been showing to friends? Yeah. Or are you in that weird thing where you think it's your own thing, but then somebody else mentions how much they love it or you go on social media and you hear a lot of mentions of it. All of a sudden, you start to feel like the cult growing. Yeah. Um, I feel that way about Psycho Gorman. It definitely happened with Malignant. Yeah. Uh, Malignant is freaking great. Like, I, yeah. I, I would go to see a midnight show of Malignant. I feel That's like Malignant is probably the quickest cult I've ever seen form around a movie that feels like a legit cult. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. not mainstream. Like it, like it's, it's definitely not it's super a weird, cute. It's a weird movie. The yeah. affection for it is very genuine. Yeah. It's not one of those ironic cults. Like, they, yeah. they tried with New York Ninja. Nobody talked about New York Ninja the week no. after its release. It was, it was fun. I had a good it's, time it's watching a fun movie, it. But, like, but, it's not going to take as, the world as, by storm. Yeah, as I said when I reviewed yeah. it, the story of its making is more interesting than the movie we got. Yeah. Uh, but Psycho Goreman is definitely in Malignant. But, and mm-hmm. Psycho Goreman is definitely... If you, if you missed... Our conversation about Psycho Gorman. Psycho Gorman is a horror comedy that came out last year. Uh, that's uh, you know those like movies where like kids befriend a magical something or other like ET mm-hmm. or Airbud or whatever and uh, makes their lives a lot better. Uh, what if the kid was a sociopath, and what if the magical creature was Thanos? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a an evil. Sp- Destructive space, space deity. Yeah. yeah, like what? If, what if like Cthulhu befriended like a young girl who was a monster, and they had wonderful mm. adventures where they like were in a band, and he granted her really disgusting wishes that like turned her friends into monsters mm. and shit. Um, it is great. I quote it constantly. <laughs> I think about it a lot. It's one of those movies I, where I there's quote, a lot of movies yeah. I enjoy in various genres, but very few of them so quickly become part of my personality, and Psycho Gorman <laughs> was made for me. Yeah. It's what a great film. I, I quote the Hunky Boys line a lot. My Hunky Boys! My, my, oh, well, the little girl's like, yeah. oh, I like these magazines. It's got a lot of Hunky Boys. And uh, here, here's Psycho Gorman, sp- evil space deity. Look at these Hunky Boys. I do not, I do not care, care for Hunky, hunky boys. boys. And then there's this long, penetrating shot of him looking at this like shirtless guy in a magazine. Well, perhaps I do. <laughs> 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 turns one of the kids into like a three foot tall brain with an eyeball on the front oh god and it i think the reason psycho gorman uh catches is it's clearly very low budget like it's mm-hmm. it's a hair away from being a trauma movie yeah. in terms of like its cheapness but the people but involved had talent they had a lot of talent and they were really ambitious yeah. uh their ambitions like way outstripped the budget and they made it work Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were really creative and really passionate about it. They, All the monster cre- yeah. designs are neat. Even yeah, the monsters themselves, yeah. some of the monsters are kind of cheap. Some of them, they threw some money some at. Some of them are puppets, some of them are actors. Yeah. Yeah, but it's... all of the designs are distinctive yeah. and cool looking. The, and, yeah. the, the walking vat of human entri- <laughs> human heads and entrails. <laughs> One of the great creature creations. What a, what a, oh, I want to shake your hand just for thinking of that. And, and I didn't know this at the time, but one of the guys from Red Letter Media, yeah. like, 
when they kill that creature in the movie, it yeah. screams. And one of the guys from Red Letter Media was the scream. Nice. Oh, <laughs> they hired like a, a friend. What a what an honor! Like, I would kill like, for that. That'd be what a uh, great thing. So if you hear that thing go, ah, that's a, a guy named Rich Evans uh, from Red Letter, no, Red Letter I, Media. I, I, I'm not, I know it takes a lot to make me jealous, but now I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you so much. And and honestly, and this is something that I'm going to say as a as a critic. Um, you know, a critic's job is actually like a lot of different things, but uh, nothing it makes me feel like I've done a good job. Like mm. someone telling me, "Hey, I took a chance on a movie because you recommended it, and I really liked it." Yeah, well, we we're never sure if we're being listened to. <laughs> That's also so, true. So when so somebody like, actually takes a recommendation of ours, it's it's actually yeah. incredibly incredibly because honor. the best thing a critic can do is uh, boost a signal and let make sure people know that movies out like you all know the Batman is coming out. You don't need me to mm. tell you about it, but there's a lot of people who probably didn't know about Psycho Gorman who might have had an opportunity or had an inclination to see it because we took the time to give it like to give it a platform. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that we made it a hit or anything like that, but even if just a handful of people checked it out who wouldn't otherwise and it, and enjoyed it, we helped. Hmm. And that's the best thing, and that's why I do this, is I want to help sort of be have, help people have interesting conversations about things, but mostly I just want to make sure you don't miss anything cool because there's a lot of really cool art out there, and hmm. I wanted to find an audience because it deserves it. Yeah. So see Psycho Gorman. See Psycho Gorman. It's so much fun. See Psycho Gorman and watch it back to back with uh, the Leica animated film, The Box Trolls. Uh, because yeah, those are a, both about feature. both gross films about maniac children, mm-hmm. and I, I love them both. That's I, I. That's you know what? Yes, that's a really great. <laughs> I would that would be a great double feature at like a, at a movie theater. Yeah, that would be that would kill. That would be great. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Josh. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Uh, good afternoon. Good evening. Hello. Uh, in previous episodes, you've talked about the concept of selling out <laughs> yes. and how it was a pervasive theme in the 1990s. Uh, the issue comes up in Tick, Tick, Boom as well, and you've asked why that attitude doesn't come up with today's artists. Well, we, we talked about that. I think a we talked bit. about how yeah. avenues for success uh, changed as time passed and mm. a new generation of artists mm. weren't offered a, a fallback of commercial success mm. as a, a way of supporting themselves and uh, giving up their art in the process, hence yeah. selling out. Um, now, any avenue of success is good because so there are so few avenues anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're making the idea is if you're making any money at art mm-hmm. right now, there feels like there's an element of selling out involved, mm-hmm. and so we just got a lot less judgy yeah. about it. But anyway, but let's let's mm-hmm. let's read on. Uh, but the letter says, first off, no one in the arts is expected to take a vow of poverty for their work. Sure. Perhaps it's because there's an I- an idolized notion of the starving artist that makes the idea of being yeah. creative and making money appear unseemly. Granted, even artists need to eat and survive. They're not required to engage in arbitrary sacrifice for, quote, reasons that are self-appointed gatekeepers claim they need to abide by. Uh, it's certain... Uh, to pause for a second, that's certain, certainly something Jonathan Larson put himself through yeah. uh, in Tick, Tick, Boom. He, he yeah. uh, thought that part of being an artist was living this sort of impoverished bohemian lifestyle. He bought yeah. into that romance. Sure. And that's a big part of Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, You're literally wearing a Tick, Tick, Boom t-shirt, uh, right? I, I, am, like, <laughs> I am wearing a Tick, Tick, Boom. I, uh, I, a, a, a little inside baseball about critis, uh, critics is occasionally they mail us swag, like yeah. promotional swag. Not, not very uh, often, but every once in a while. And usually it's after we've seen the film, at least yeah. the, after I saw Tick, Tick, Boom, I got the sweatshirt. So yeah. I, I like the movie. I Really, I just wear the sweatshirt because it's warm yeah. and it's cold, cold AF here in LA. I mean, if you right hated now. the movie, you probably wouldn't wear it. No, you wouldn't want to. No, no. You wouldn't want. But like, you happen to like the movie, so whatever you wear. So the shirt, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm wearing. But yeah, um, yeah. 
Anyway, uh, the other reason I believe that this attitude no longer exists uh, is because of the greater access that creatives have now in presenting their work. In fact, mm. as you probably both have deal- dealt with in social media, you are expected to push your own brand to get attention. Mm-hmm. That used to be handled by a massive marketing and PR departments. I came to this realization when reading Sellout by Dan Otzi, which looks at a group of punk, emo, and hardcore bands in the late 1990s and early 2000s. In the book, Otzi profiles several bands that got discovered in the 90s, beginning with Green Day. In the 90s and prior to that, for creatives to get attention, there were only large imposing gatekeepers in whatever medium they were in, especially music, mm-hmm. where even if you were a punk band who were trying to stick stick to the true ethos of never selling out, fans weren't able to get their music because whatever DIY label was carrying them did not have the bandwidth to distribute their music. Mm-hmm. The fear of getting, and that led to local music, like right. local band. You know who, you know who these guys are because they have 20 CDs and, and they're all owned by people in your neighborhood. Right. But if you're, right, if you're, if you're, if you live same, elsewhere, you might same, never have heard of them. Yeah, like yeah. the same bar in North Hollywood, that sort yeah. of thing. It's always weirded uh, me out to find out that like people like on the East Coast don't always know who like Sublime was. Yeah. Or they yeah, only know um, because like one hit song. Like, I, you know, like, yeah. I was shocked to learn that outside of L.A., uh, Oingo Boingo wasn't really a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oingo Boingo was enormous here in L.A. I thought it was huge. this nation. And, you know, Constantly did, played on the radio. Yeah, Dead Man's Party was on the radio all the time. Yeah. Uh, just Another Day, uh, Private only Life, Lad, Only yeah. a Lad. Like, these yeah. things were all over the radio in the, in the 1980s. A great band, by the way. If you've never heard mm. Oingo Boingo, just, even if you just check out their greatest hits album, it's like it's a bunch of amazingly weird, yeah, ambitious yeah. music. Like, it's uh, great. To pause for a minute, because I'm an Oingo Boingo fan. Uh, Oingo Boingo was uh, originally the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Mm. Uh, was founded by uh, Richard Elfman, the film mm. director. Uh, and it started as this kind of wild burlesque show, and they wanted a kind of a weird, funny name. The Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. And uh, his brother, Danny Elfman, mm-hmm. uh, kind of took up the mantle and turned it into sort of a more proper rock band. But mm-hmm. it was still kind of a quirky rock band with like a brass section. Yeah, and they still had kind of like, I wouldn't say all their songs were novelty songs. They were the, always up on the cusp because they were about were like a, weird subjects. A little subversive. Uh, yeah, they did the theme song. Yeah, a little theme song to Weird Science. They appeared yeah. in uh, Back to School. And Danny, Danny Elfman, of course, mm-hmm. became an incredibly successful film composer. Um Richard Elfman continued to direct really weird movies. Like Shrunken Heads. He's an incredibly strange man, and I admire him. Yeah. Anyway, check out Oingo Boingo. Anyway. It's talking about gatekeepers in the music industry. Sorry, I lost my place in this letter. The DIY labels didn't have the bandwidth to distribute their music. The fear of getting signed by a label was that the music was going to change in, ex- in exchange for that access. Mm-hmm. Now, with those gatekeepers gone, access is freely available to anyone who wants to participate and put in the work. I understand there's a whole separate discussion about having to conform one's online content to fit with SEO parameters, oh, yeah. but that's beside the point. Yeah. Glad to have the opportunity to think this through, Josh. Yeah, that's something yeah, we didn't, didn't really bring up, that part of selling out as an artist is compromising your vision. Yeah, It's not just about making money, it's about... Uh, succumbing to the sort of the corporate brand. Yeah, that's it's because yeah, because the idea is that okay, well, I wrote this thing and I sold it to a corporation and now they own it. Cool, but it's mm. also they can do anything they want with yeah, it now. They can a... they can ask me to change it to be more mainstream, to be less interesting, to sand off all the edges that make it worth making in the first place. Mm. You can remove oftentimes themes that they consider unmarketable, but are perhaps perhaps more important to mm. you. Things about. Uh, and queer themes might be get saying, might get queer removed. Queer things or, talk about death, yeah. rough, rough yeah. material. There's uh, that's a subplot in uh, the movie Reality Bites. Yeah, uh, the, one of the characters is making a documentary about all the characters, 
and they try to sell it to like this MTV like thing and they turn it into something like a hip and hot cutting and yeah. like like quickly cut and everything's really kind of crazy and wild and energetic which is nothing what they were trying to do. Right. So that's sort of an example of selling it. And that's uh, funny because I know a lot of people who see that movie now and see them as being very unreasonable like no they made your they made your show successful. I'm like, like yeah but they, That wasn't the point at the time. That's the point. Yeah. Like, that's, and that's something that we talk about. Yeah. There's a there's a bunch of things that came up in this in this letter that are actually like I think really important that don't get enough time about I, to start with the idea of this fantasy we have of the starving artist or worse the suffering artist uh the idea that great art comes from poverty and suffering mm-hmm. and while oftentimes great art does come from that the idea that in order to be a great artist you must be poor or you must be suffering mm-hmm is something that is deeply unhealthy and it it, it well, kind it, of belies the idea that happy people have anything to contribute to art or that you can also create art and be healthy you can go to yeah. therapy and you can make yourself feel better about things and still be able to produce art that means mm. something to people and can find an audience there's, there's no reason why not. It's weird. I, I think there's there's two things going on here because this this notion of the suffering artist comes from uh, mm. examples throughout history. Sure, famous artists who did suffer. Yeah. Um, don't tell me that Vincent Van Gogh was in a good place. No, he was in a terrible uh, place. Uh, but you know, we're, his paintings are still celebrated to this day. Right. And you know. But I just want to, the, one could argue that people could have been like nice to Vincent Van Gogh and appreciated mm. his work at the time, and they still would have been good paintings. Yeah, that's the that's my point. I think that's the uh, thing that maybe we. But could there's overlook. there's many many stories of famous, very celebrated artists who uh, just were completely impoverished or struggling or suffering a lot. Even some of the more popular authors, like Charles Dickens, yeah, one of the most popular authors of of his day. He was read Stephen his King books. of his day. Yeah. It was huge. He he could fill auditoriums just for yeah. readings of his books, and uh, he was constantly struggling with money. Because yeah. he because he had 150 children, that yeah. was a big part oh, yeah, of it. Uh, yeah, and mistresses but, uh, galore. Yeah, <laughs> so he had a lot to pay for. Yeah, uh, but it, he was also struggling financially, even yeah. though he was a, successful. Um, I you look look up uh, Dostoevsky at some point. I yeah. was like you're living in exile, or you know even hear about Ovid. You know going mm. way back to Roman times. These mm. artists who lived in exile and lived in well, poverty. You think about really filmmakers struggle. who struggle to make mm. even a small movie get made, while no. other people like you know like oh yeah, but I made this giant movie for Warner Brothers mm. and it wasn't very good, but at least I got to make a movie. Meanwhile, I'm desperately trying to wrangle up a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, John Wells, Waters is an example of Orson this. Wells uh, is another one of those. He yeah, had a but, couple of early. And studio films then struggled for decades but there's something uh kind of I, I would rather see like a struggling artist who had like barely scrounged up a hundred grand and made something really sort of filthy and exciting mm-hmm. uh over a really slick 200 million dollar studio production and and uh yeah it's in some cases made by the same person yeah. uh, like sam raimi's evil dead 2 is far more entertaining than Oz the Great and Powerful. And I would agree with you. Uh, However, I would say the other thing that that we need to look at here, and it's something that people don't think about enough, is the idea that, oh, they're starving artists, therefore their work is great. Uh, They also deserve to make money off of the lot of lot of work that they do. Mm. Art is a lot of work. Making good art, developing the skills necessary to produce skilled art, takes time. It mm-hmm. takes energy. It takes money. It takes investment. 
And people who make that art and make it well, especially if they make it well, but just in general, they deserve money for what they do, mm. which is why piracy, I don't, I'm not worried about piracy affecting a giant corporation. I'm worried about piracy affecting someone who doesn't have a giant corporation to protect them and mm. actuality, like, because they're putting it all out themselves. If you pirate their shit, that's actual money you're taking away from them that they actually yeah, need man. in order to be able to produce more art. It's really, really difficult, mm. which brings me to my other point. The idea now is that if you sold out, if you sold your stuff to a studio or a corporation or whatever, that they would take on certain responsibilities like marketing. Mm. You don't have to do, you might participate, but you don't have to do that yourself. The DIY art scape that we're in now where there's still people who are working with you know big studios or record labels yeah, or whatever yeah. but everyone else is expected to not only create the art but promote the art and those are very different skills yeah and yeah. a lot the, of people uh, are very of... brilliant artists but the but they're introverts you know asking them to go out and sell themselves <laughs> no, they, is antithetical to they, they, the, what created the art yeah and there's so many people out there they can put it on like an online store but yeah unless you stumble upon it you're not going to find that yeah the other thing i was going to mention uh was the reason we don't talk about selling out anymore is this weird sort of modern sensibility toward uh, the sort of pro corporate sensibility mm. that we see in a lot yeah, of, of discourse about yeah. the arts um, that, yeah. that the corporation that buys your stuff is a good corporation. Yeah, they're, they're going looking to out good, for you because they're giving you more Marvel. They're, they're, yeah. They're giving you money and they're going to take this thing and they're going, it doesn't matter what your vision is. Yeah. You're now part of this, warm corporate family yeah. that is going to advertise things and sort of homogenize it and make it part of this gigantic, very well-liked uh, corporate entertainment landscape. And yeah. a lot of people see that as a very, very positive thing. Yeah. That uh, all of this big sort of well-moneyed entertainment is something that they really want to be a part of. And a lot of people are trying to buy into that. Yeah. They're not trying to sell out. They're not trying to compromise some sort of artistic vision because they're not trying to fight that. They're trying to no, promote they're trying it. They're trying to work within that yeah, paradigm. They, they, yeah. they want to be in that system. So I think that's another reason why we don't hear mm. about selling out anymore. The ambition has changed. A lot of times, yeah. Uh, it's not about necessarily... Well, and there are, of, there's artists all the time. There are always yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. artists who are trying to fight the system and break out and do something new and interesting. And we need those, them. And those are, we need them. We're looking for them. We're critics. Yeah. Those are the ones we're looking for the most. And those are the ones the corporations <clears> will then spend the most money to buy because they're exactly. doing the interesting things. <laughs> you look at sort of a director you'd never heard of before that did some sort of big Marvel projects. What was their previous film immediately? It was yeah. probably some small indie drama. Yeah, we, we, for everyone who's like, oh, I love Taika Waititi. Mm. I'm like, great. Did you see The Hunt for the Wilder People? Did you see... Mm. Eagle versus shark or boy, you may have, mm. you probably didn't. <laughs> and I know because I saw the grosses on those films. <laughs> they didn't sell very well. Mm. At least two of them are great. It's <laughs> like I, I didn't uh, care for Eagle versus shark, but the other ones are great. Uh, one of the biggest movies of all time, Jurassic World, was directed yeah. by a guy named Colin Trevorrow. And yeah, his previous film was this tiny little indie drama. Uh, he had never. Safety Not Guaranteed. Safety Not Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, and it was just like this little indie time travel story yeah. and uh not you very talky not not yeah. a lot of flash not a thriller not made for a lot of money and mm. uh yeah his next film one of the biggest movies of all time this gigantic yeah. big money a billion dollar motion film. picture they just here's here's a guy who's creative he seems interesting mm. uh let's just buy him up and I, put his talent to work I believe, making a product for us. I, yeah. I could be wrong on this. I'm, I'm not a box office pundit, but I believe uh, Jurassic World has some sort of record for the biggest opening weekend of all time still. It certainly because did it, at the time. Because it, op huge. it opened 
worldwide on the same day, yeah. which is kind of rare. Yeah. And uh, it made half a billion dollars in a single weekend. Yeah. Just globally. Yeah, it was uh, ridiculous. There's the first time that had ever happened. No, it's wild. It's yeah. absolutely absurd to even think about but, it. I'm sure it must have been a real whirlwind for him. The idea that... Now, here's what's going on, though. Um, these sort of, like, soulful indie directors clearly have a lot of talent and a lot of passion yeah. for telling certain kinds of stories are then scooped up by this big studio system. And the people who love the studio system say, Great! Now they have all this money. Uh-huh. I like to see them get paychecks. And I want yeah. to see what they're going to do next. And what they do next has only ever happened a couple of times. Colin Trevorrow made The Book of Henry, which tanked. It's, uh, it's not a good film, but it's not the is the film he wanted to make. It's the film he wanted to make. Taika Waititi made Jojo Rabbit. That yeah. was sort of like one good positive spin. Yeah. Um, Joss Whedon made his own little intimate Much Ado About Nothing. Which was basically a vanity project. Yeah. It really wasn't so, like an actual, yeah. But it, it seems rare that these filmmakers that are sort of being swept up out of obscurity and put into sort of the corporate yeah. seat are then going on to make these a lot of lot more smaller, yeah. interesting movies yeah. that they always wanted to That's make. always the fantasy. I'll make mm. the giant movie, and then after that, I'll go back and do something mm. really interesting with all this clout that I have. And oftentimes, you end up just getting, making more of it. Like, Denis Villeneuve mm. is one where, like, every he just keeps getting bigger and bigger. A lot of people are really happy about that. I know a lot of people like his movies more than I do. I, I, I like some. I don't like all of them. I like Arrival. Uh, Arrival's really brilliant. Good, yeah. Arrival's brilliant. I think there's a lot of brilliant stuff in Blade Runner 2049, even though I've kind of... It's great photography. It's really <laughs> gorgeous, and there's some really cool ideas in it, and I think parts of it work really, really great. Um, but, like, he just, like, where do you... He, he's not, like, going back to... What was the one he did with Jake Gyllenhaal? Enemy? Uh, was that that one? Oh yeah, enemy. Yeah. He's not going back to enemy territory. Mm. He's just making more Dune. Mm. Okay, I'm if, reminded of if, actually. Here's here's a great example. I'm reminded of uh, Michael Bay. Okay, Michael Bay is one of the biggest cottage industries in the world. Mm. Uh, he spent the majority of the last twenty years making Transformers movies, and even he was sick of it. And there was a time when he was like, I'm done. I've made these like toy commercials and they're gigantic. I had fun, but like, I'm done. I have nothing else to do with it. And I, he wanted to make like this like little heist movie, mm. like this kidnapping movie called Pain and Gain. He's clearly a big fan of the Cone Brothers, yeah. Michael Bay. Oh, very much so. Mm. And uh, he wanted to make like a small crime movie because he just where his heart was. And he was told this story uh, in like an interview somewhere where he was like, I wanted to stop making Transformers movies. I was done after like the third one. And they were like, you got to come back. And he's like, well, no, I want to do the other stuff. And they were like, you don't understand when you make a movie, hundreds of millions of dollars get spent and people get paid. Mm -hmm. The industry relies on projects, the scale of which most studios are uncomfortable producing unless someone like you is directing it. Yeah, we we know you're reliable. You yeah. know you know how to make. You're hits not out of these allowed things. to make small movies anymore yep. because the industry will suffer and people mm. will not be able to make payments on their houses. Yeah. and that's the side to selling out that we don't necessarily think about. Where all of a sudden you become like it be, you become a cog in a machine, mm. and maybe you're happy, maybe you're not, but you're still a cog. You're part of a larger thing. You don't get to be independent yeah, I, anymore. I feel like a lot of fans of the bigger entertainments are just yeah. are, are really happy that Dennis Villeneuve is going to make Dune films from here on out. I'm, fair enough. If you're uh, happy with it, I guess that's okay. But like I, meanwhile, yeah. George Lucas, if you're listening, Please. and I know you are, because I know you're a big fan of our podcast. Yes. 
make that one hundred thousand dollar movie. Please make it. I want to see it. I want to know what's in your mind right now. Go I want to know what to, kind of artist you are always cinema, meant to please. be. Yeah, I've I've seen yeah. THX eleven thirty eight. I know uh-huh. you're capable of really interesting stuff beyond big yeah. space adventures. Yeah, do that. Uh, I want to see the filmmaker. I feel like some filmmakers can move back and forth pretty easily. Soderbergh's one of them. Yeah, very easily. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, who's, who's another one? They can make like big indie dramas, but also like blockbusters. Uh, Linklater is one of them. Yeah. Uh, he, he Martin Scorsese is used to getting money, but his films are still basically small dramas. Yeah. Like Silence is money, but like it's still this intimate study about faith. Yeah. Um, um, Scorsese is not a great example. No, nah, you're right. It's not a great yeah, example. But, um he doesn't make sort of like broadly commercial pictures. Um, no, not no, not anymore. Um, hmm, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, but yeah, this idea—I think that's a big danger of selling out. Uh, yeah. You know, people assume that once you start making Dune films in perpetuity, you've hit yeah. your stride, and that's where you're going to want to stay. Whereas other people say, "Well, an interesting artist might want to have to say something else." Yeah, they might. They might get bored. This. They might want to yeah. do just other stuff. Why not? Who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I admire Kevin Smith for st- stopping making movies when he didn't want to anymore. Yeah, it's like, what do you have to say? Well, nothing really. Well, I was talking. I was talking. Who's talking about this? Um, the uh, I, I interviewed Kevin Smith for the movie Yoga Hosers, which nobody liked but me. <laughs> I like Yoga Hosers. I like Yoga Hosers. Yoga Hosers is cute. I like the Yoga Hosers. I mean, um, it's, it's clearly just a bunch of people getting together for a goof. It, yeah, it barely f- reads as a movie, but no. it's it's an enjoyable laid back. I was watch. I was interviewing Kevin. Smith. I interviewed. I saw it at Sundance. I interviewed Kevin Smith the very next day, mm-hmm. and I was talking to him, and I was basically just like, you know, this isn't a film with a lot of profound things on its mind. And he was like, let me explain something to you. Like I am at a point right now where I'm getting older and I'm not necessarily like young and hungry and out to tell like every single amazing story. I did this movie so that I could make a movie with my family. Yeah. I did a movie with my daughter. My my daughter starred in it. Her best friend is the co-star. Uh, her best Johnny Depp, like her best friend's father, is in it as well. His wife's involved. Like, I got to make a movie with my kids, and he he literally just said, to, like, when I'm on my deathbed, mm-hmm. this is the thing I'm going to remember is being I, able yeah. to make art with my family. And yeah, it was a it was a larf, mm-hmm. but that was the experience was what was more important. Mm-hmm. And I had so much respect for that. <laughs> I mean, not and everyone has that it, luxury, but like, mm-hmm. I have so much respect. Like, seriously, good for you. Well, it, it's this tiny film. It was made for yeah. hardly any money at all. He yeah. made it with his, yeah, his daughter and her best friend. Yeah. Uh, the Johnny Depp was involved, kind of got some money, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it helps, but like, he at the star, time, but, yeah. But I'm sure he was just doing it for a lark. Oh, he totally uh, was. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he, he got to character. wear a like, silly yeah. makeup and do a funny voice. Oh, what? Uh, oh, Johnny Depp did? Really? In a movie? Yeah, imagine that. Isn't that weird? Because he never gets to do that. He never gets to cut loose and play a weird character. He always plays such straight-laced beings. Uh, but that's that's sort of the spirit of indie, uh, indie cinema. Yeah. Where you don't have to worry about what the studio wants. You just do what you want. Exactly. The money's not there, not but the passion is. And no. I think that's why indie cinema is so interesting to so many people. It's, yeah. it's one of the reasons I like going to sort of smaller independent movies. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Oh, so talk about it. yeah. um, it's a big, big complex conversation. It touches, yeah. it touches every aspect of the industry because hmm. again, film, you, you can write a poem for nothing. You can write a poem in your head. You can write a poem with a piece of paper and a crayon that you borrowed from a restaurant. Like you don't need money for that. You can or just keep it. the crayon. They don't want it back. I'm just saying it. like you, it, it can cost next to nothing or nothing. 
to produce certain kinds of art, at least tangibly. Obviously, it takes a lot of like commitment and skill and whatever, but like just financially. Uh, movie making is expensive even at its cheapest. Even at its cheapest, you're still spending thousands of dollars. Uh, not everyone has that. It's a lot of economic disparity right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have that as disposable income where you can use to take a chance on an artistic project is not a luxury everybody has. And yeah. so as a result, it is incredibly difficult to remove the idea of financial success from the equation of artistic success in this mm-hmm. industry. Because at some point, you're expected to make your money back. Otherwise, you will not be able to continue making films. Mm-hmm. Kurt, so Kurt, and you're a sellout. I'm not a sellout. What's a sellout? If you work in movies and you make money, you're a sellout. <laughs> I mean, kind of. And like, but that's and that's the thing. It's impossible to completely remove money from the conversation of cinema, which means it's impossible to remove capitalism from the conversation of cinema, which means yeah. it is impossible, at least in this industry where it's not like government funded, but like it's impossible to make a movie without considerations of what will people sell? What will people interested in? Why why are we going to market this? And once you start factoring in those considerations, you're starting to compromise potentially what you want to do, unless what you want to do was insanely marketable to begin with. If it wasn't, you have bet you have tough decisions to make. And that's an ongoing issue that pretty much every artist has to deal with in any medium that costs money. Mm. Um, it's tough. It's tough. And yeah. there are people who still really, really wrestle with yeah, it. The, Spielberg um, has trouble getting movies made sometimes. It's hard. It, it, it's hard. And, you know, the the, the un, unsteady relationship between art and commerce is always going to be part of the conversation. Yeah. No, you, you can say that it's a vital part of the conversation and that it's all about making money. You probably have an NFT. Uh, <laughs> Which is not a, a, about the art at all. None no. of the conversations about no, NFTs it's, it's are about, about the rights. art. It's yeah. about bragging. It's about it's people. It's a, well, it's about bragging rights and it's about uh, it's about money laundering. Well, it's of course, about, it's about money. It's about laundering. having money that is off the books. It's about having money that is off the books. It is. It, but what, what someone was explaining this, and I was like, I kind of get it. Mm. I disagree, but I kind of get it. Uh, they were talking about how in the world of the digital. Mm. Um, there's no scarcity, and as a result, you know, if you drive past someone with a Lamborghini, you have a Lamborghini and they don't, mm. and that makes you special. However, if you are, if you have a Twitter account and you have a picture of a Lamborghini, you're not special. No. Anyone can have a picture <laughs> of a Lamborghini, so you have to find a way to make things that are commonplace part of scarcity. And I'm like. That's fucking stupid. It's, it is really stupid. That's uh, a terrible I, way to look at things, and I, it's I know, really not healthy. It's really oblique, but I know the reason they can inflate the value of a single digital image is the amount of physical space they actually take up, yeah. and the actual like memory required to yeah. hold, store like a single NFT in order to sort of justify its value. It's cartoonish. It's it's like. One of those things takes as much energy as like a factory. No, no, it's, it's like incredibly banks and wasteful. banks and banks of, of computer servers it's, devoted to just a single monkey picture. It's disturbingly wasteful. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and they all plummeted in value because uh, all of those servers are in the Ukraine. However, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh, that's amazing. But like, I think, what, but we saw this in the Super Bowl. We started seeing all these ads uh, for NFTs, where it's just like you know, ah, crypto.com, and it's like, yeah, and here's um. Like Ewan uh, McGregor and Matt Damon. And oh the, yeah, but what was the one with um uh 
the basketball guy who's like in the time travel that got to meet his younger self and it's like a bad CG version. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, is, is it basketball um, time travel basketball? Yeah, it's um, it's what's his name? The one really famous basketball guy, LeBron James. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Sorry. I, it, no offense, Matt. I just don't remember right. people's names and stuff that I don't but, follow. Okay, LeBron. Uh, but, okay, LeBron James. He was in an ad, or he was like, in an ad. He was okay. in an ad, and the idea was LeBron James is in his college dorm room with his younger self, who's made in CGI, mm-hmm. totally unconvincing. Uh, and the whole thing is just like, so you're telling me that in the future, like we can watch movies on our phones and we're all driving electric cars, and LeBron James is like, yeah. Man, the future is cool. Mm. And it's like, is there anything else you want to know about the future? And LeBron, young LeBron James is like, is the hype too much? Am I ready? And LeBron James is like, I'm not allowed to tell you everything. I just know you have to make your own path. And I'm like, A, what the fuck does this have to do with NFTs? <sighs> B, or, or, or cryptocurrency in general, like this whole fucking thing. Uh, but B, mm. What are the rules in this time travel universe? <laughs> LeBron, how did you end up here? Was it an accident? Were also, you like, if, if were you, were you touring me. a large Hadron Collider and your basketball fell in and you tried to like get it? And I'm like, I think I can get it. Ah! And now all of a sudden you're here with your younger self and you're hiding out in his dorm room and no one can see I'm, the older you. I'm and like dribbling you're old. the Higgs boson. And at some uh, point, yeah. like some scientist said, okay, yeah, you can tell your younger self a few things about the future, but you can't tell them too much about your specific basketball career. So you have to like, what do you, what is this? And is this going to be the next Space Jam? Is this going to be the oh, next God. commercial Look, that turns into an actual movie? Because that one is, I kind of want to see. I'm not going like, to lie. Owning like, cryptocurrency is for free-thinking economic yeah. radicals who want to live off the system. So yeah. to be a free thinker, you have to buy into a scam. Yeah. That's what I've you have, learned. You have to pay attention um, to all these commercials. So I have a bridge for sale. Uh-huh. Uh, it's in Brooklyn. And uh, I'll give it to you for like five grand. Just I, Venmo me five grand. That bridge is yours. They renamed the Staples Center in Los Angeles, like the Crypto.com. Crypto.com suits. I don't know a single, I mean, I'm I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know a single Los Angelino who has agreed to call it that. No, we call it the Staples Center. No, no, no. I know a lot of people are calling it like the Puke Center now. Like, they're just like, from now on, hey, listen. Puke Center. I'm calling it Poop Central. Like, it's just like, what am I, I'm not going to call it that shit. Fuck that shit. I'm going to say a basketball game at the toilet bowl. Yeah, we're not going to do it. And we have, let's make let's, let's, let's <laughs> go off on one more letter. We got off on a huge we're, tangent. We're let's make some there. time for one more letter. Uh, here's a letter from J Lo. No, not that one. Okay, J Lo. Hi J Lo. Nice to hear from you again. Um, J yeah, J Lo has been writing to us for a yeah. while. Uh, gents, one of my favorite parts of watching along with all our yesterdays. Hmm. That's our Star Trek podcast. Yeah. Uh, is seeing what different things we take away or become fascinated by. In Where Silence Has Lease, mm. and here's the part where Bibbs interjects with a quick summary of the episode. <laughs> yeah, with the plot of, even though I'm about to become the, do the same. So uh, okay, I'll I became fixated on the scene where Picard and Riker agree to set the self-destruct on the Enterprise. Yeah. And debate how long they would like to have until they die. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you both pointed out the double meaning of the everything the crew does. Surely the debate they have is not uh, if you're about to die, how long do you need? And more about how long do we need to deal with this situation? Mm-hmm. But right at face value, how confidently the command of the ship decided that 30 minutes was enough time to sort out your emotional affairs and bid farewell to existence was a comical moment that quickly became me, uh, quickly had me contemplating the same question. So, yeah. Captain McCool and Commander Bibbs, oh, God. how long do you set the self-destruct sequence for? Oh, my God. Gods be J-Lo, no, not Love that it. one. P.S. I've thought about it for a month. 30 minutes is probably a solid answer. I think it's fine. Um, the, okay, so the question, by the way, if you're not a patron, uh, we have a Patreon podcast called All Our Yesterdays. Mm-hmm. We review every single episode of Star Trek in order, and we just started uh, working our way through season two 
of the next generation. So we've already gone through the original series, the animated series, the first season, next generation, some of the films. Um, there's an episode called where silence has lease where the enterprise uh, runs into as it often does an all powerful extra dimensional being. And this one has decided it wants to study us inferior beings as mortals on the enterprise. And because with, with a concept, it doesn't understand. Yeah. Because they do not have the concept of death. Apparently they just keep living good for them. Uh, but they're interested in the exploring death firsthand. So they kill one of the crew members. Like, interesting. I'd like to try a few more experiments. I'm going to kill about half the crew in a variety of different ways, if you don't mind. I'll give you some time to get your affairs in order. And Picard's just like, well, that's bullshit. So here's what and, we're going to do. It's he doesn't say it, but it's implied that he's going to like torture them in creative ways. Yeah, they, he's he wants to, everyone's going to die in a different way. It's probably going to be really horrifying. It's a, Star Trek is often a horror show. Uh, people don't always talk about that, but there's a lot of monster stuff that happens in it. Uh, and in the course of the episode, Picard decides that the only thing we can do, because this is an all-powerful being, we can do nothing to stop it. I would have loved it if he called Q. Like, hey, Q! Yeah, can you <laughs> he help out, us out with this? Take out this thing? You yeah. like us, right? What the hell? That would have been fun. But he, what he decides to do is, all we can do is take our fate into our own hands and not let this all-powerful being decide how we're going to die. We will decide how we're going to die. Yeah. We will set the self-destruct on the ship. Now, and without saying it, because the villain might be able to hear them, there's this implication that this is all a bluff. Yeah. But they can't say it. On the surface, however, they say, we're going to blow up the ship. <clears throat> and the, he has a conversation with Riker. How long should we set the ship to, to explode for? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, what they're thinking about is what's a, what's a, what's enough time to give this all-powerful space being time to question their own choices and give us some cut us some slack mm. while still making it seem like we're really going to yeah, do like, this. Like if it was a minute, yeah, a minute, like sixty not seconds. Happen. That's not not that's, enough time for that being. No, no, no. Like a minute is probably <clears throat> like you know putting everyone out of their misery pretty quick. Probably yeah. might be the more the more humane thing to yeah. do. Five days. That's like that's Way a lot too, of leeway. That's a long it? time. Yeah. That's a long ass time, and and it's noncommittal and plenty of time for your opponent to do something else. 30 minutes, on the other hand, good, solid, hmm. suspenseful 30 minutes. Everyone gets to decide what they're going to do with the last 30 minutes of their life. And that's an exciting thought. What if you learned, I mean, it, in a terrible way, but in, it certainly is engaging of the senses. Yeah. What would you do if you had 30 minutes? Well, where am I? Yeah. Uh, because Star Trek takes place on a ship. That's their work. I mean, a lot yeah. of people, they're like families on that ship as well. Yeah, they have their quarters and yeah, stuff. But, but yeah. you know, they're all like on the job, essentially. The, the families yeah. are the families of officers. Uh, so if if I'm at my job, like yeah. if I'm in a room with a bunch of my coworkers, yeah, not you, my family, not yeah. my friends. It just would take you more than 30 minutes to get home. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm if I know I'm going to die at work, how much time would I need? Yeah. 30 minutes sounds pretty good. Yeah, that sounds it's fine. like I'd. I'd you know, I I have I have some close friends that have been coworkers in the past, mm -hmm. but you know, I've never been so close with a coworker that I need more than thirty minutes to put my affairs in order with them. Yeah, or or my boss. You know, I I don't need to give teary farewells necessarily. Yeah, it's also, if I'm just sort of out in the world with my yeah. life and I know like my body will explode in in a certain amount of time, like mm -hmm. that's my self destruct. Uh, I'd want more time mm -hmm. because I'd be able to sort of reach out to my family and reach out to my friends. And, you want you know, more experiences. Least. Yeah. Or if I know that it's going to be inevitable either way, 60 seconds, 60 seconds <laughs> just, fine, just, yeah. just get it over. With. I like 30. I actually, I, I concur about 30 minutes. I mean, it's an arbitrary number. You could say 28, who cares? But mm -hmm. like 30 minutes is good because it gives you an opportunity to settle in a little. 
Okay. But it doesn't give you so much time. To start second-guessing well, stuff. I mean, I guess if you want to come up with some kind of alternate plan to save the day, you'd want as much time as possible. But let's assume for a moment that that's not in the cards. And we're just dealing with the finality of whatever. 30 minutes is enough time to mentally get your affairs in order. <laughs> 30 minutes is enough time to be like, okay... Well, this sucks, and I get to process how much this sucks for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I get to think about, ah, oh, but I had a good run. You know, a lot of nice things happened. I met lovely people. I got and married. Even I if had, you think you about know. the bad things you've done, yeah. it's not so much time that you could start getting really deep in the weeds about how yeah. bad you feel, felt about those things. No, and it's like, I mean, it's, like it's just enough, it's fast enough time. That you, yeah, it's like 30 minutes seems like, I mean, it's a depressing, it's a depressing, like, hypothetical scenario just because, you know, the end. Um, but, um, yeah, I think 30 minutes is not a bad number if an alien space being is going to destroy you otherwise. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> generally speaking, I want as much time as I can fucking get. I'm going to tell you that right now. I will take as much time as you have to decide how long you have until the ship explodes. Um, forever would be great. I remember, uh, I uh, forgot uh who, would, who, which philosopher, I think it might have been Camus, one of those really depressive yeah. philosophers who said that, uh, the way to win at life is just to die later. It's yeah. not about quality. <laughs> it is just about quantity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every, every second, every extra second you get is an opportunity to turn things around. No, but it's yeah. for Camus. It wasn't about turning things around. Well, you know what I mean? Like every, every, value. It's just, well, you're alive now and you won't be alive later. Yeah. The more you're alive, the better you are. No, I just mean like every second is valuable is my point. Every second is something where you could do something with that. You can eat, you could whatever, like it's something you, right. it's a resource you won't have anymore. Um, I was actually thinking about uh, one of my favorite book series of all time, and I read them constantly growing up, was The Enchanted Forest Chronicles by Patricia C. Reed, W-R-E-D-E, which were just lovely books, by the way. I haven't read them in a while. I don't remember anything problematic in them. Um, But it opens up with a young princess who refuses to do all the Disney princess things. And all she wants to do is learn things like, I want to learn how to fight i want to learn how to cook i want to learn about history i want to learn all kinds of stuff and you just want me to get married and they're like yeah would you mind and she's like yeah i do actually so they want to betroth her to this young idiot and um she can't figure out what to do and then finally she runs into a magical frog and she's like are you like a prince or something like that no i'm just talk it's fine and anyway, what's up <laughs> and she's just like ah, i'm in this shitty position we're supposed to marry this guy and i don't know what i'm supposed to do and he's like well couldn't marry him if you were kidnapped by a dragon. She's like, well, I don't, there haven't been any dragons in here for forever. Find one. Volunteer. So she volunteers to get kidnapped by a dragon. Mm-hmm. And she ends up having this, like, kind of, like, at the time I wasn't putting it together, but kind of happy, queer, like, domestic love thing with this dragon where they just have they're just really happy together and chill. eventually she gets married to a guy in a future book but like for a while it's 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 pretty coded um but there's this one bit where she's going through all of like the the dragon's magical stuff and they accidentally unleash a genie and the genie is just like i am the genie of the lamp and if you have released me 600 years after i have been imprisoned uh, I could have given you three wishes, but it's only been 500, so I only give you one, and you may choose the mode of your own death. And she says, old age. No! <laughs> no! She's like, why not? That's a perfectly valid reason. Yeah, but it's not fun! <laughs> 
So that's that's what I pick. <laughs> go I, old and happy. That's what I want to go. I think of the movie, uh, I saw a movie called Death Note. I know it's based oh, yeah. on like a, an anime and a, and a manga. manga. And, yeah, yeah, I saw the manga. But, I, I read some of the manga, I saw the anime, I never saw the movie. Yeah, the, the live-action American feature film yeah. uh, with American actors. Um, I think they tried to condense a lot into yeah. the one movie, so it feels like the original movie and like four of its shitty sequels, like all crammed <laughs> into one. Uh, not a great film, but I, the interesting uh, concept is the Death Note. and. Yeah. um you get to choose, of course, it's like a darker version of that story where you get to choose the mode of somebody else's death. You, you, write, you write someone's you write name in the death note the and they'll and, die. And they die. You but you be... also get to choose how they die and yeah. when they die. Yeah, like, if you don't choose, the they die. like two weeks or something. If you can choose how and when they die, if you just write it down in here, if you don't say how or when, they'll die in a specific amount of time and it'll always be a heart attack. Mm. Uh, but if you can also just say and they get killed by mm. a falling Chrysler. Yeah. You know, something. Uh, but... There's a lot of talk of, like, the rules of the book in that yeah. movie, which I really appreciate. There's, like, a demon that comes with the book that explains the rules to you, and there's, like, this big instruction sheet on how yeah. it works. Like, And uh, the demon explains, but you can't choose something that's, like, impossible, like, eaten by a shark while sitting on the toilet. Like, you can't have that. It's just, yeah, that's like, not gonna in, work. in a high-rise. The, the, the book can't do that. They'll just have a heart attack. They'll yeah. just die. Yeah. There's so, so much So, so much of the manga this, this is just of... trying to figure out ways around the rules. Like, yeah. I tricked someone into writing in the death note. By, I tore off a piece of paper, and that still technically counts. And like, oh, God. It's so great. I love it. Uh, it's so fucking deep. It's so obsessive-compulsive. It's so detail-oriented. That, that, that's what I like yeah. about that movie, yeah. Death Note, is there's actually a lot of discussion of the rules. Like, okay, so what if I wrote about this one? Dealer's Choice. Okay, well... It's going to kill one of your relatives as well. Wait a minute, I didn't write that. Ha but I'm a demon. You know, that sort of thing. Um, right. I, I When I hear that sort of offer in like fantasy scenarios, you get to choose the mode of your own death. Yeah. What if I choose something impossible? What if I do choose like a shark attack on a toilet? Yeah. I want that to happen. Right. You want to like, die. You want to die I, in the most I, elaborate I, way possible. I want yeah. you to go well out of your way to make my death happen. Yeah, make somehow. it. Make it so. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I want. I want you to set this like Rube Goldberg Final Destination trap yeah. montage in order that has to start years in advance <laughs> in order for it to get to me. Yeah. It's like I. I. I want like a chunk of rock, but it has to be like a. a a rock from the surface of, of Venus. Yeah. And it has to make its way over here somehow. And I want it to be like yeah. coughed out of the throat of a dog and fall into a gun. This, just this oh really, God. really long, like weird scenario. That's what I want to choose. Yeah. <laughs> if I choose that with, with like the genie. So <sighs> fuck, <laughs> hang on. I got to call a lot of favors for what you just asked. Right. So, um, so it doesn't have to be like late. I just want it to be elaborate. <laughs> no, I can appreciate that. Uh, it's a uh, it's a weird topic because obviously neither of us want to die. And uh, but uh, if we got to go because an interdimensional being or whatever is forcing us into a situation to decide how much time we have to die, mm. thirty minutes is fine. Anyway, that is it. Thirty minutes is enough. So anyway, that is it. <laughs> what an interesting email to go out on. Thank you for that. What a choice. Uh, okay. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for joining us on a pretty, pretty, pretty strange journey. Actually, we're going to do a lot of interesting topics this week, and it means mm-hmm. a lot to me. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we're able to make the time for this this week. I know it's been again a little spotty, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna get back to it once Whitney's schedule equalizes. Mm-hmm. Um, soon, soon it'll happen. Very soon. Anyway, thank you everybody once again 
for supporting the show. If you're subscribing, thank you for that. If you can afford to be a patron, we're especially grateful to you. If you want to join, if you want to hear our weekly Star Trek podcast, if you want to hear our weekly Batman podcast, if you want to hear our monthly Oscars podcast, we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. If you want to hear our commentary tracks, if you want to do a uh, Patreon hangout, we're doing one this weekend. Uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to have you be a part of the group. And if you can't, totally get it. But, you know, subscribe if you do, to the free network if you can. Tell a friend. Mm-hmm. Every little bit helps. Uh, we're also uh, on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to email us and be on We've Got Mail, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box again? Uh, yeah, send it to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh Writing in longhand is appreciated. It's very nice. I do yeah. like that. Uh, you don't have you, to. You don't have to, though. No, yeah, you don't you have just to. type it in. But it's anyway, we, we always appreciate it when people send us things, letters, whatever. It's always very, very nice. And it just, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to get mail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and it's very lovely to give an opportunity for you to have uh, the floor here at Critically yeah, Acclaimed. Yeah. So, thank you once again to everybody who participates. We're sorry we can't get to every email, every letter. Uh, we try to do as much as we can while still having. Mm. Are very very long winded conversations. <laughs> Sorry, I know we took up so much. Um, anyway, uh, bada bing, bada boom. We have a thing that I forget. What am I forgetting? Um, you sell soap. You I sell soap. About, you want to talk about your soap? Me and my partner M. Lopez de Silva. We sell soap at our online soap store on Etsy. Our soap store is called Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Salt Cat Soap is also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. If you want a link, you can find it there. Uh, and we make and design. Uh, our own soaps, they smell amazing. They have a lot of really creative designs. Uh, I recently just did a new batch of my shave bars, uh, which are uh, uh, shaving uh, lather, but in bar form, like soap. You can also use it as soap if you want. Um, uh, it foams up really, really nice, and it smells of espresso and honey. And it's the only thing I use when hmm. I shave. And I know I don't shave like a lot, but I do tidy. Um so uh, we got that uh, available at the store again. We have a whole bunch of new designs, and uh, we're going to be dropping some new designs the first week of March. We did we release new designs the first week of every single month. Uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, who has already purchased some soap. We've had amazing reviews so far. It means the world to us. Thank you, to everybody, for trying us out. Uh, remember, uh, holidays are coming, and everybody needs soap, so you might as well have some nice ones. Uh, so that's Salt Cat Soap. And... Um, and, and I sell radio dramas. You sell radio dramas. Yeah, it's true. It's, While it's, we're at it's it. It's not as uh, palpable and uh, doesn't lather up as well as soap, but you can listen to an audio drama. It's uh, art, and you deserve <laughs> to be compensated I've, for uh, it. I've, re- I've recently made four. Uh, those are available for free to our $20 level patrons, but mm-hmm. you can also buy them separately uh, piecemeal. Uh, just contact me on the social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Instagram. And yeah, just ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... One about Venmo. A, uh, yeah. I have a yeah, I have a Venmo. You can pay Venmo, pen pal, uh, pen pal, PayPal, pen pal. or or Cash App. Uh, yeah. you know, send me a few bucks, and yeah, I'll just email you an MP3 of all my shows. They're th- about thirty minutes each. And they're great, by the uh, way. They're really good. They're all pretty strange. Yeah. Uh, one one of them is actually just sort of a sweet story. There's nothing really weird about it. But um, yeah, one's about a time traveling lesbian bar. It's got a, a mm. talking crab in it. One takes place in a counterculture store in 1991, and that one's just a conversation. Mm. One of them is about a, a video recording of somebody who could predict the future, so they have conversations with people in the present and ask them to commit an act of revenge. And uh, the most recent one is about is, was the Christmas episode, which is uh, <laughs> uh, my friend Chelsea, who's actually in all of the show. Her name is Chelsea Spirito. Um, 
she does this wonderful solo performance of playing a woman who is stalking Frosty the Snowman from her car. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, it's really it's, funny. It was really fun to write. Yeah. Anyway, so, so yeah, buy buy any one of those. Please check them out. They're really really great. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So everybody, uh, thanks again. Uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want to write in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Sincerely yours, Bibson Whitney. Thank you.